Acts chapter 11. So pretty exciting stuff. Uh, Barnabas, I think if I had to have like an all-time top three uh, list of passages and or people in the scripture, uh, Barnabas is definitely in that top three for me. Uh, he's not really mentioned a whole lot, but he just is a tremendous guy uh, that has a pretty awesome ministry, and really not so much the ministry that he has, but the way he goes about it. Does that make sense? He's just a, a genuine guy that loves the Lord and wants to help people, and uh, we need those people men and women in the church that have that kind of attitude. I know there's a little bit of a danger whenever you kind of try to focus on a, a personality or a person in the scripture. The, the, the message can kind of come away with this idea, this plan like, this is what Barnabas is like, so we should all be like Barnabas. God bless you. Have a good Sunday. And you're kind of left thinking like, especially if you're not like Barnabas, thinking, how do I get there from here? You know, and it, again, can kind of just end up, end up in this place of, of uh, condemnation or a place like, oh man, I'm just not that, or whatever it might be. So the hope is to be able to look at Barnabas, consider Barnabas, and really consider what Jesus did in Barnabas. Does that make sense? How he was yielded to the Spirit, what God did in his life, and brought him along. So uh, we're going to read the end of uh, Acts 11, but the plan is to kind of split Barnabas up into two weeks uh, to cover. First, we'll cover how he got there, and then we'll cover what he did when he got there next week. So in chapter 11 and verse 19, it says this, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists along, uh, excuse me, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them to, uh, to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And we'll stop there for a second. So what happens is, remember when we went back, all the way back in uh, what, Acts 4, 5, 6? I can't remember now. Anyway, Stephen is stoned to death, if you recall. So when that occurs, it basically emboldens this huge persecution against all Christians. Remember, up to that point, where are they meeting? They're meeting on the temple grounds, right? So it might be, sometimes we may not think about that, but you have the temple, and then outside the temple was Solomon's portico, which was kind of on the east side where the sheep gate was. And it was, I forget the dimensions now, I think it was 30 feet wide and like 600 feet long. So you have all these Christians literally meeting right under the noses of the people that propagated the crucifixion of Jesus, quite literally like 50 feet from the temple. So you have the temple, and then you have the church in, the, in, the, in, in basically this columned portico, porch, that's uh, called the Port Solomon's Porch. So that's where the church is meeting. That's where like all these things are going on. And what's happening? Well, you had, for example, where people were, uh, 3,000 people get saved on the day of Pentecost. They start sticking around. They don't want to go back to their homes and these things like that. They're interested in this movement of the Holy Spirit that's going on. So they stay. So all of a sudden, you have thousands of homeless people. So that creates a housing shortage. It creates food shortage, all sorts of things, right? Because Jerusalem at this time, the time of Jesus, is only like 15,000 people. And, and, and just for kicks, Bethlehem, where he was born, is like 400 people. So 15,000 people, and then you add however many thousand, because they were there for Pentecost. Pentecost was one of the mandatory three feasts that at least the head of the household, the man, if not the whole family, had to come to if you lived within a certain radius. 
So they estimate that at, at um, uh, Passover and Pentecost, there might be as, million as, two, uh, as many as like 1.5 million people in Jerusalem. So out of those people, that 3,000 people get saved, and now they, and, and it's, we can't, there's no uh, history or, or log to tell us who was from there and who wasn't, but it, seems, it serves to purpose a lot of people most likely were not from there. So they stay. So what happens is people start donating stuff, and it's kind of funny, I like to make the joke that, you know, in the New Testament, there's no example for how giving takes place except in Acts chapter 5, and it's that people went up and laid it at the elders. So if you want to get biblical, we can get the elders up here, and you can just like tithe in front of our feet, you know. Obviously not. That'd be really weird. That's why we would go with the Old Testament example of the box in the back. But having said that, people are basically donating. They're selling land, they're selling the property, and they're donating that money to the church to make sure that all these new believers that are there and, and don't have uh, food and shelter and so forth have money. They're providing for them. Well, obviously that, and we'll get to it a little bit next week, that impoverishes in some senses the people in Jerusalem and later on the, other, the church surrounding Antioch and so forth gives a gift to help them out. But all that to say is there's this brief time in history that all these people do this and Barnabas is part of that. Okay? And so Barnabas' real name is Joseph, and we know that from Acts chapter 4. He's part of that giving. Well, after that happens, and all these miracles are going on, and healings, and preaching, and all these things in Solomon's portico, one of the, they choose five, or excuse me, seven guys, deacons, servants, this is the word is servants, and they were there to make sure that the Hellenistic Jews, so Greek-speaking Jews, foreigners, if you will, Gentiles, who had converted to Judaism, they were being neglected by other people, by Jews, in the, the widows were, in the giving of food and so forth. So they select these seven guys. Um, interestingly enough, they're, they're not Jewish guys. They're Greek guys. They select these guys, and these guys begin to minister to the Hellenistic uh, uh, Jewish widows to make sure they're provided for. Okay? So Stephen is one of those guys. Now, Stephen, it says, is full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. So he was, I don't want to necessarily want to say he was a standout guy per se, but he was the person that the Scripture followed because he's, the, he's martyred. He's the first Christian martyr. So what happens is they're in Solomon's portico, that little corner there, that 30 by 600 foot part of the outside of the temple, and miracles are happening and people are being fed, and there's all this amazing stuff is happening, and evidently there are people, this is like the synagogue of the freedmen, some of the Pharisees, they're coming and they're arguing with Stephen. And they're saying, you know, whatever, there's, Jesus isn't the Christ, this isn't legitimate, what you're doing is wrong, that's what they're all saying. And so Stephen is full of wisdom. He's able basically to discuss with them and show them from the Old Testament, no, Jesus is the Christ. This is the truth. They get so angry with Stephen, they grab him and they take him outside of Jerusalem to stone him to death, and they do. Now, Saul is there for that. He holds the coats or watches the coats of the people that decide to stone Stephen to death. So out of that martyrdom of Stephen comes this huge... um, Basically, uh, momentum, this wave of persecution, where kind of the enemy is the, the enemy of our soul, Satan, is motivating people, and, and, and this widespread spread persecution begins to happen in Jerusalem. So, as a result of that, thousands of believers, it says that everyone except for the apostles, now everyone I'm sure is uh, uh, hyperbole. Um, that it doesn't necessarily that every single believer, but the idea is that the bulk of the believers leave Jerusalem and they go out and they start preaching the gospel. And it's pretty amazing in itself that, that the heart of these people, they're being sought after to be slain, is like running for their life and like screaming over their shoulder like Jesus is Lord to just preaching the gospel as they go. So what happens is, and that's where we kind of pick up here, where it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Antioch is 300 miles from Jerusalem. And at this time, it's right around 75,000 to 100,000 people. So Jerusalem is 15,000 people. Antioch is 300 miles away. And it's about anywhere for 100,000, right around 100,000 people. So it's a huge city. It's actually considered to be by the Caesars of the day, or the Caesar of the day in ranking, like the third most important city in the Roman government. So you had Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. 
There was a huge temple to Jupiter there. Jupiter uh, oftentimes was referred to as uh, uh, the, well, he was looked at as kind of the overarching most powerful god in Roman lore and, and Roman, uh, Roman uh, belief systems. And there was a huge worship center for him right outside of Antioch. And it was very big there. So it's, it's heathen worship, it's, it's animal sacrifice, it's uh, pedophilia, it's everything that goes along with the Roman system of worship. It's, it's radical, it's disgusting, and that's where they run to. So some of the Jews that run all the way there, and or, well, they probably took a break, but you know what I mean, they go, they go all the way up there 300 miles, and they're preaching only to Jews. Remember last week we talked all about that, and it's going to be, it's, it's, it's decades, literally, that the, that the church struggles with Gentiles being able to be saved. So some Jews are going up there, they're preaching only to Jews, but then there were other people, and they, people that had reached Cyrene, and it says there, um, lost my place, verse 20, but there were some of them, that is these Jews that came forward, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So there were some of them, that and we don't know who they were, we don't know why they did it, but they got this crazy idea. And they said, we're going to preach Christ to people who aren't Jews. And what happens is, a, a bunch of these Gentiles begin to get saved. Quite a few of them, actually, as the commentary goes here. They were preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So you have this... this uh, event that takes place, and, and I kind of want to camp here for a second because I think, it's, I think it's important. A certain group of people, this is very generic, so let's keep it generic. Let's not try to say what they were thinking or who they were because we don't know that. But there's a certain number of people, then the implication is they were Jews. They've run, they've, they've, they've fled 300 miles, and they're preaching that way and then there's other people from the area, from Cyrene, and they begin to speak to Greek people. And a couple of things about this. Number one, it says they preach the Lord Jesus. That's very foundational. Because as, as, as Jewish men, there's probably a ton of things they could talk about from the Scripture, right? Uh, growing up in, uh, in the Jewish community, typically speaking, meant a lot of memorization, a lot of uh, going with your family to sacrifices, a lot of your life revolved around Judaism, which is probably why, one of the reasons why it was so difficult in the early church for Jews to leave behind Judaism, because it was something that they had done as, as a form of life for their whole lives. But anyway, you have these people that are moving forward. That they begin to preach to, to others. We don't know where they got the idea, but they're, they're, they could have spoken about all sorts of things. They could have spoken about how Jesus was Jewish. That was a big topic for the Pharisees and so forth. They could have talked about the, all the glory days of, of Judaism. They could have talked about how they were being persecuted. They could have talked about you know, what their political standing on Rome and the, and the, and the current Caesar was. They could, there's a million things they could have talked about. But they seem to talk about one thing. They preached the Lord Jesus. And what happened? People got saved. A lot of people got saved. And this, I think this is, is important for us right now. We don't live in, in, in the Roman culture. I know it might feel like it, and we can kind of read some stuff sometimes and go, what's going on here? Why is this condoned? Why is this like, you know, uh, looked at as a positive, and why is this happening? You know, why does Mambala get to exist in the U.S.? All sorts of things we can think about. But we're not there yet. We're not, we're not Roman yet. And yet, these guys, they preach Christ. When the, when, when the Jews hate it, pretty, the only reason that the Romans weren't persecuting Christianity yet is because they looked at it as being a sect of Judaism. Judaism was a state-approved religion at this point. That's going to be taken away, but later on they start to realize, like, these Christians, they're not Jews. And so Christianity becomes its own thing to the Roman government, and then radical persecution begins, Domitian and some other guys. Anyway, they preach the Lord Jesus. So what does it mean to preach the Lord Jesus? What, how, do, how do I do that? What is it talking about? It just means they told who he is and what he did. It seems like the farther we get in our society and just kind of the radical splits that are happening politically and uh, all sorts of stuff like that, 
the one safe place, I'm not saying it's not offensive, but the safe place that we can go in all of our conversations is Jesus loves you. Jesus paid for sin. Jesus rose again, and now he lives in heaven to make intercession for you. We have a very simple message, and the cool thing about the gospel message, the cool thing about preaching Jesus, it has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with bipartisanism. <laughs> it doesn't matter which side you're on. It has nothing to do with Jesus Christ is standalone in every nation, in every race, in every financial difference. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the, the, if we, I think it's a good hint here, a good thing to adopt here, that when we want to truly minister to people for the kingdom's sake, for God's kingdom's sake, we cannot go wrong just leaving it with Jesus. And we don't need like an extra tagline with that. That for a certain group of people, we have to add things to the gospel like, oh, well, Jesus died for your sins, but you can't be gay if you get saved afterwards. Or... Jesus died for your sins, but you can't be this and you can't be that. Am I condoning sin? No, I'm not. I'm saying the gospel is always the gospel. Jesus is always Jesus. He's the one that forgives. It's His Holy Spirit that leads. We just get to preach Christ to people. And so what happens is these people simply preach Christ. They didn't preach their history, their politics, their religion. They didn't preach any of that. Is there a place to talk about those things? Of course there is. But for salvation's sake, having a simple message of who Jesus is in the midst of radical persecution. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? These people, are, they're 300 miles away from Jerusalem. They're like, forget that noise. We, we're not ready to die yet. And they're still preaching the very thing that is getting them condemned to death. And other people are receiving it. Because the gospel is mighty and it's powerful and it's wonderful and it transcends the reality of forgiven sins and cleansed hearts transcends any other message that we could possibly give to people. So he's going to go, we're going to go on here. Verse 21, not very far. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So God was working with them. They're preaching the Lord Jesus we don't know the complexity, the simplicity of their messages, but they're just preaching Christ. He is the, the cornerstone and the focus of their messages. And the result is the hand of the Lord is with them. And it literally is the hand of the Lord. And again, this is a metaphor. I don't think Jesus' hand was like following them around. Maybe that's why people got saved. I don't know. But no, literally, the idea is his power, his sheltering, his guidance. The hand of the Lord is with them, leading them, blessing them. The hand of God. We need that today, right? In the midst of the COVID and the politics and all these crazy things that are going on in our world, injustice, whatever, all the things that are happening, we need God's hand. It can really feel like God's kind of been shut down, can it? As if like somehow through COVID and uh, whether it be peaceful protests or riots and everything in between, uh, you know, all the different things that we're wrestling with, it really can feel like we're not just sheltering from COVID, like we're sheltering from life. Like we, we have to steer clear and be safe and make sure and all this. And again, I'm, I'm not saying a message like you shouldn't be safe, okay? Please don't come away with that. But what I am saying is that God's not like done ministering. We're not in some sort of dispensation in Christian history where it's hunker down time and hope for the best. That's never been part of Christian history. That's never been, you know, the, the, it's kind of, for me personally, because I do love the United States of America, and I am very thankful for the country that we live in, and I do want it to prosper and to do well. But Christianity has never revolved around the Oval Office before. It never has. In fact, there's only been an Oval Office for, what, 200 and some odd years. So Christianity excelled and saved and blessed and cleansed for 1,800 years before the Oval Office was ever invented. Not to mention it's been burnt down twice. <laughs> once by the British and once by the Canadians, right? I mean, so <laughs> it doesn't revolve around Congress. It doesn't revolve around our laws. 
It doesn't revolve around what people think of it. The gospel is a standalone, supernatural, powerful message. And what we have when we invite, really, the opinions of Jesus into our lives, when we're willing to yield to what he has for us, when we're listening to him, and his hand is with us and guiding us and leading us and emboldening us, everything else, it just is what it is. We're citizens of heaven. These guys are in the most, one of the most oppressive governments that has ever been. These guys are running from one of the most, the, probably the most established religion that has ever been. All the chips are against them in this world. And the hand of the Lord is with them and people are getting saved. May it be that we pray and ask, Lord, not that we just, it's not just be bold now. Just be bold now. But to know Christ, to hear his voice, to know the spirit in our lives, and to move forward in that. Boldness without spirit-led reality is usually offensive and oftentimes worthless. We're called to be led by the spirit. Our boldness, our excitement, our energy, our strength is from the Lord. And so often, again, I'm I'm talking about myself. So often, the economy or politics or whatever it might be, that can be my dictator of how I feel for the day. What my health is like. What my bank account is like. That can really determine my mood when I wake up in the morning. And it's just wrong. It's never supposed to be that way. Those are all just things of this world. Temporal realities that are passing away. Simple things that that don't matter. The life that we have in Christ is so far above our bank accounts or or our fears, it's ludicrous. When you start looking into Hebrews 11 and you read about all these people, it's it's they were simple folks like us, often disobedient folks. I think my favorite list in the heroes of the faith is Samson. Samson is listed in the faithful. Samson? A dude, he's Jewish. And what does he do? He goes out and get a Philistine wife. They were never supposed to do that. He takes a Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow is, yeah, you don't cut your hair, but it's, you don't touch grapes. You don't touch dead things. There's other things involved. So where do you see Samson? In a vineyard, eating honey out of a dead lion. I mean, that's as close to dabbling with breaking your vow as you can get, right? I mean, was he like, don't touch the grapes, suck it in a little bit. I mean, he seems pretty buff, pretty wide, much like myself. So I'm thinking like, <laughs> I don't think I could get through a grape vineyard. <laughs> but you know, and yet, and what, what is Samson's big claim to fame? Well, he killed a bunch of Philistines. He fought for the Lord. But ultimately it says that he slew more Philistines in his death than he did in all his life. Which you're like, yeah, how did he get there? He got there through compromise. Little by little, compromise, compromise, compromise. And he ends up tied up between two pillars with his eyes gouged out to be mocked by the Philistines at one of their big orgy parties. What a way to go out. What a man of the faith. And yet he just prays to the Lord, please give me strength one more time. He literally commits suicide. You ever think about that? I don't have a doctrinal statement on that. But he literally kills himself to kill the other Philistines. And he pulls the two pillars down of this kind of temple thing, and the whole thing comes crashing down on all of them. And yet here we have, he's listed in Hebrews 11 as a model of faith. Why? Because he actually trusted God. Did he do it all the time? No. He didn't do it all the time. Did he do it always right? No. He didn't do it always right. Are we saying, hey, let's live that life and then it'll be good? No. He had a lot of problems. He ended up with his eyes gouged out, being made fun of because of his compromise. There was always, and there is always, fruit from compromise. It will always reap death. But that doesn't, even, even that doesn't disqualify us from calling upon the Lord. God is so gracious. He's so kind. We have tons of problems. 
many times in our lives, we have many things that we don't deal with. The Bible actually says, in many things, we offend all. We're offensive. We're selfish. And yet God says, if you'll but call out to me, my hand will be with you, and I'll use you in my kingdom for great things. Like, God is amazing. And the invitation he has to each one of us to walk with him and to experience that on the daily is outlandish and lavish with his grace. And it's pretty, it's pretty amazing to hear these people and they're overcoming like crazy and all they're doing is preaching Jesus. They don't, even, they don't have the Bible. <laughs> they don't know how the resurrection worked. They don't, they don't know all the things of the gospel. They can't turn back to Luke. They can't turn to Matthew, Mark, or John. They can't turn to the epistles and say, this is how the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus worked, and this is what happened here, and this is what happened here, and this is when Jesus, when he descended and he, and he purged uh, uh, Abraham's bosom and then rose again and he went to heaven and then he gifted people and there's the Holy Spirit. And they had none of that. Think about it. They had none of that. All the doctrine that we have, praise God, all the things that we could think about, that we can point to, they had none of it. They literally knew that God was the God of the miraculous, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that the Holy Spirit was working, and that's what they ran with. And God did amazing things, and people got saved. It should be super encouraging, because if there's anything that this world needs right now, it needs you. It needs you. And it needs Christ in you. It needs the Holy Spirit you. It needs the being changed you. It needs the dealing with your sin you. That's what this world needs. We literally hold the remedy for every single problem that we're seeing in society in our own hearts. And the Holy Spirit attached to our own souls. But it's really, it's 100% up to us what we're going to do with that. We can be the servant that takes the talent and kind of buries it away. And just, ah, we'll see what happens. Or we can be the people that rise up and say, I don't know it all. I don't have it all memorized. I wouldn't consider myself to be Hebrews 11 material. But I'm going to let Jesus into my life. And I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to listen to him when he speaks to me. And that's who these people are. As we move on, verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Again, one of the just amazing, simple uh, statements of the Bible. Think about that. If you're Barnabas, you sold land. He had land in Cyprus, right? We know that from Acts chapter 4. He owned land. He sold that land. He donated it to the cause of the church. Now, we don't, from then till now, he's not really heard of. We don't know what he's doing. We do know that his name is Joseph from Acts chapter 4, and he was later called Barnabas by the apostles. So he had some sort of interaction with the apostles, and they had come to know him because Barnabas means son of encouragement. So this guy's M.O., this person's uh, vibe, <laughs> if you want to call it that, what he was known for is like, that dude encourages people. He encourages them. He wasn't Barnabas, the scholastic giant, or maybe he could have been. He wasn't Barnabas, the spirit-filled healer man. He was the son of encouragement. These people need encouragement. You know what? Healings are great. And we've seen people get healed in our church. Doctrine is great. And it helps with our growth. And hopefully we're, we're working and learning our doctrine here at this church. But you know what every single person needs more than anything? More than healing? More than peripheral doctrines being you know, solid on that? They need encouragement. This world needs encouragement because it's a scary world. It's a scary world. I mean, just the other day, I, we were looking at going somewhere, and I, and I was like, wow, I'm going to check TripAdvisor to see if I can get my family through Portland. Because I, I from my own personal conviction, as, as, a, as, a, as a father and as a husband, if my car gets stopped, I'm not stopping. That's my personal conviction. I don't say that in boldness, but I'm not, I don't want to be in a position where I have to not stop. So we literally live in a world where we have to check to see, is it safe to drive through the highway? Isn't that radical? 
I mean, if, if, if six months ago somebody would have told you, hey, there's going to be these things, some of it's going to be peaceful, some of it's going to be very not peaceful, but you have to be really careful where you go, like beyond normal stuff. We would have been like, oh, come on. I mean, really? I don't know. Maybe a couple days, riots, but we'll move on. We live in a scary world. But to be able to have the message of Jesus that God loves every single person, that Christ paid for the sin of every single person, to have the the reality of his Holy Spirit working in us, strengthening us, his hand to be among us, to, to realize that God wants to do great things through us, to realize that we can leave those things of, of fear and, and so forth behind and transcend that, and to be able to encourage other people, it's going to be all right. Aren't those like the best words in the world? It's going to be all right. Guess what? This world's going to burn. We already know that. We've read the back of the book. There's no surprises, right? The world is going to burn. Before it gets destroyed, a third of the forests are going to burn. Two-thirds of the water is going to become undrinkable. So the world gets 70% of its oxygen from the ocean. What happens when the trees in the ocean are destroyed and all of a sudden we have global fires? You're talking about oxygen levels that are going to drop below self-level. You're talking about radical breathing problems for every single person on the planet for years. And then one day it says that God will take the earth and he'll wad it up like a garment and he's going to chuck it into the fire. I'm not saying be irresponsible. I'm not saying to be cavalier. But there is no hope. There's no expectation for this rock. None. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. C.S. Lewis said that the earth is is God's uh, rough draft. If he spent seven days on the earth, what must, uh, what must heaven look like? But it's not the end. And nothing here is the hope of the earth. We get to enjoy it. He's freely given us all things for, for our enjoyment. He's blessed us. There's no, this isn't a guilt trip. This isn't a try harder trip. This is a let's let the world be the world and the things of the world be the things of the world. Use them, enjoyment, enjoy them as it is appropriate. But let's live for heaven. Let's live for the, for the gospel, for the kingdom, for the reality, reality of what God wants to do. Let's help people around us with the message of the gospel. Let's help people around us with our financial goods. Let's, let's be those that live, preaching myself here, that live as if heaven is real and money is truly worthless other than a tool. Let's live that way. May we, may we get to the end of our life and be Barnabas. May we get to the end of our life and and be like those people that just ran for their lives, like sprouting the gospel to the best of their ability. You know, there's an interesting verse in in 1 John 5. I'll look at it real quick. I was talking about this when we went through 1 John on our Thursdays. But in 1 John 5... John, is, this is five, chapter 5 is kind of a reiteration of the, of the letter. But he says there in 5.1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Notice there's two different things there. I, I don't want to leave this behind. Everyone who believes in Christ is born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of them. Okay? Nowhere in 1 John does it ever teach that a believer can't hate another believer. It only makes the point that everyone who believes is saved and everyone who loves will also love other Christians. So if I don't love other Christians, it doesn't mean I'm not saved. It means I don't truly know and love Jesus. And that's kind of a painful one. Chapter two, or verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God when we, are, when we love God and we obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. As a young believer, I read that, and I thought to myself, His commandments are burdensome. I'm just telling you the truth. As a 16 to 18, 19-year-old James, 
constantly writing love letters to the world. Wish you were th- I was there. Unfortunately, I'm at church. I knew God was real. I knew he had saved me, but I found the things of God incredibly boring. I thought church was boring. I thought prayer was boring. I thought worship was antiquated. It was just being a punk kid. That's where I was at. And I looked at these things, and I, and I remember reading this verse, and his commandments are not grievous. And I was like, how can you say that? The only thing not grievous is Jesus. Everything else is like, really? Do we really have to do all this stuff? Can I just, it was not a good place. I'm not saying, hey, let's get there. It was a bad place to be. But it's interesting because he says, he says, this is what loving God is, and this is what loving his people is. This, this is like the nuclear bomb of the scripture. Because remember, this is agape love. This is the idea of a moral love. Looking and saying, I have ultimate respect for God. I value him and what he says is the best. And then transferring that and saying to love my brother or my neighbor is to say, I want the best morally for them. It's not a feeling. This isn't, this isn't phileo love. It's not brotherly love, affection. This is moral love of God. And he says, if you want to know, if you love God, then you love all his people that are saved. You're like, all of them? Can't there be like one or two that I don't? No, he says, if you want to know, if you love God, you love every person born of God. Again, this is the agape love. You look at every single born, every single person who is born again, and you say, I want the best that God has for you. And not in like a weird elitist way, like, maybe someday you'll arrive at my level, young one, Padawan. No, this is the idea of esteeming someone else is more excellent than yourself. You're more important than me. I want the best for you. I will do whatever I can do and humble myself and, and esteem you over myself to see you thrive in the things of God. That's what agape love is. And this is rough. Because he says if you don't have that, you don't actually love God. He doesn't say you're not saved. He says you don't actually think the best of and respect for and listen to God. And that's, man, that's a tough one. And then he goes on to say, he says, this is what loving God is. And this is what loving your brother is. Here we're like, okay, what does it mean that I love my brother? He says, you obey what God commands you to do. So that's a twofold statement. If you're not doing what God told you to do, you don't love God. I don't love God. I'm saved I might have affection for him. I might have some sort of respect in him because it's not always black and white. But the reality is I do not have a purity of a morality of my love for God. I have compromise in my heart. And if I look at God's people and I despise them, I don't love God and I don't love them. And I'm not walking in what God has for me. And it's amazing how fast we can just degrade, how fast we can get to this point where we're measuring and condemning one another. When we're not willing to forgive or to move forward with with one another. And if that's the truth of our hearts, if I'm not doing what God has called me to do, in this case, it's to love God and to love my neighbor as myself. The original command there from, from the Old Testament, from Jesus, and from John. If I'm not doing that, if I'm not listening to the Holy Spirit, what it says about me is that I don't have that love in me. And then he says, and these commandments that he has for us, they're not grievous. Part of the, the, the reality of the Christian life is not waiting to get your feelings zapped. We kind of, I think for a lot of us, myself included, sometimes we're just, we're just kind of waiting for things in our life like, Someday that'll just change. Someday I'll be willing to do what God always wanted me to do, always wanted me to do, but right now I'm not willing, so I'm just going to keep not walking in that willingness, but then someday Holy Spirit lightning will strike me in the booty, and then I will move forward. But that is not how Christianity works. God is gracious, and God speaks to us, and He coaches us, and He invites us, but He never forces us. The way the human brain works most of the time is that change comes over a lifetime. C.S. Lewis says, as slow as the tide lifts a, a, a ship that's run aground, that that's how God works in our life, where in one moment, all of a sudden, you just realize it's floating. You don't know when, you can't 
can't point to a time or a moment when the boat began to float, but all of a sudden it's just floating. And so often that's how God works in our lives. And he works through what? Obedience. What kind of obedience? Well, first the thought life, right? First my thought life. Measuring what I think of God. Judging God. Measuring others. Measuring the scripture. Not that we have blind faith, but, but to be reasonable about what he's saying. His commandments will only, we will only find his commandments joyous instead of grievous when we spent our time dealing with our thought life and not just waiting around for our thoughts to change. That's not how the mind works. So when I have doubts, when I have anger, when I have disdain for God's people, I deal with that on the spot. I say, Lord, you know that thought. That thought's not of you. That thought's of Satan. That's the main theme of 1 John, that sin always comes from Satan, the world, and the old nature in us, and life and light and peace only come from God. So whenever you see one thing or the other manifested, you know exactly where that came from. God never, and the fruit of God never manifests sin, and the fruit of sin never manifests God and his fruit. So as soon as I have a thought that's anti-Christ, as soon as I have a thought that's anti-God, I deal with that thought. And, you, and I'll tell you what, that's laborious, isn't it? Because we have a lot of thoughts that probably aren't Jesus' thoughts. Right? I do. We probably have a lot of things that we want to say and think about that we mole about, that we're angry about, that we're scared about, that we sit there and mole and mole. And then we watch Netflix to not mole. Right? And then we stop watching Netflix, and lo and behold, the thoughts are still there. What happened? Maybe ice cream will take them away. It doesn't, I can tell you, right? When instead, we're called to take every thought captive. And what that means is that when that thought comes into my life, I acknowledge it. Lord, that was not from you. That was not your vein. That was not your spirit. That was my rottenness. Or a suggestion from the world that I saw on TV or something I'm listening to, and I've now entertained it and begin to walk in that. That's how change occurs. And the crazy thing is, as you begin to deal with those thoughts, as you begin to invite Christ into your life and the Holy Spirit, and you begin to entertain and begin to invest in the things of God, all of a sudden you find His commandments are not grievous. Some of the best memories... I came from a really weird, really legalistic church where we had meetings five days a week. And if you didn't show up, you got a phone call. And there's a lot wrong with it, and a lot that was rotten in it. But some of the best memories of my youth were, even though maybe the motivation had been wrong, were, were times that I gave the most of myself. Does that make sense? And the times that we, uh, you know, for example, we used to do these teams. We'd go to like San Jose. I was, I'm from San Luis Obispo, California. We'd go to San Jose, we'd go to Davis, we'd go to Sacramento, and we'd, get, we'd go for like four weeks. You'd try to get the time off from your boss. My boss was really good to me. I, I worked at a Honda store and fixed cars. And we, we'd get these like six weeks off, and you'd just go and preach the gospel every day. Granted, I was in my 20s, but I was, you know, you're literally getting up at five, getting lunches ready, getting breakfast ready, and there's about 50 people, and you're just going every day in a car, and you're going and just handing out invites and doing Bible study and preaching the gospel. And, and, and that sounds like really miserable, right? Because it's like 90 degrees in San Jose and muggy. It's, and, but it's amazing. And you're wore out beyond anything. And you're thinking to yourself, how did my alarm go off again? And yet, I look back on those days standing on, went to the UW once before I lived in Washington. And it was, gee, it's not me. It's like I'm some spiritual dude. I'm really, I'm the Samson of, of Hebrews 11. But I look back on those days of literally, by the grace of God and some guilt from our pastors, pouring out everything that I had. And I've, those were the days, man. I did stupid things. We were, we were at San Jose State, and we, I, think, I was thinking about this last night. We, three of us, went to, we, were, we went in the middle of the night, Christians on a mission team, and snuck in, climbed the fence, and went swimming in the San Jose State swimming pool. 
And the funny thing was, they had like a 15-foot brick wall, and like 80 pounds ago, I climbed it. And then we actually had to jump from the brick wall into this like, it was like the tower where you, you jump off like the three-story tower thing. There's this window. And we literally jumped from the wall through the window onto a ladder. And I'm like, and then we jumped off and went swimming at midnight until we saw the guard coming, and he chased us away. We climbed the fence and got away. Mission trips for the win. <laughs> we didn't do it all right. I look back and I'm like, I could have gone to jail that night. I, you know, I probably been like, yeah, I'm going to jail for the gospel. And somebody had to like come along and be like, no, you're going to jail because you're an idiot. But you can still share the gospel if you want to. <laughs> the more, as John the Baptist said, the more that we decrease and the more that he increases, the more life we experience. But the more that we hoard, the more that we say my own, the more that we insist, because all we can insist on is this life, right? When we hoard, when we insist, when we draw lines in the sand, when we say no, what we're saying no for is what this life has to offer me. Pleasure, sex, drink, money, that's what this life has. So honest to goodnessly, with earnestness in my heart, if you choose that, go full on. Because you've got like 80 years of it. And then it's over. But if you're willing to invest in what Christ has for you, it's eternal. And it's this weird lie. We really believe the more I give, the less I'll be. And the reality is, the less I give, the less I, the less I, the less I give, the, the smaller I get. It's the opposite. When I give to the Holy Spirit, not to guilt, not to people's demands, but to the Holy Spirit, when I give, the, the greater I become. Remember, Jesus said that, in the, that John the Baptist is the greatest man that ever lived. But every single person that's going to get into heaven has to be greater than John the Baptist. Because it's, it's every single person that goes to heaven, it's, they're saved, they've trusted in Christ, they're getting a new origin. And now we're invited to walk in the power of that new origin, which is from God. So none of us have to, but all of us get to if we want to. And I encourage you, because that's, that's what's going on. That's who Barnabas is. It's just how he's living. And now God's using him for these crazy things, like going to Antioch 300 miles away, where they must have had absolutely insane worship services to start with and so forth. Last verse here. In Philippians, Paul kind of, he puts it this way, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says this, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, this is Philippians 2, 1, 2, 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also in the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And we'll stop there. Can you imagine being Barnabas? And they say, hey, bro. Hey, Barney. We need you to walk 300 miles. Maybe take a ship. Maybe he went from Jerusalem to the coast and then took a ship up. We don't know how he got there. But it's, this was no like, this wasn't Carnival Cruise Line. This is miserable travel. That's the only thing that existed in the Roman Empire was miserable travel. And they say, hey, we want you to go 300 miles. Now, he was probably familiar. He did own land in, in Cyrene. But we want you to go all the way from Jerusalem because we heard there's some Gentiles getting saved and we're going to send you. What a, what a, just a crazy commitment to go to the apostles and be like, I'm in. I'm in. Let's do this. We're going to send you to Gentiles, which until recently we didn't even think could be saved. We're going to send you to Gentiles that people in our own church don't want to be saved. 
We're going to send you up there so you can see what's going on. And do you know why we're sending you, Barnabas? Because you're the son of encouragement. Because we know once you go up there, you're not going to go up there and trash them and measure them. You're going to go up there and help them. You're going to encourage them. You're going to bring them of the, the fruit of the Spirit. You're not going to just go up and go, here's the rules for worship. Here's how you should meet. Here's what you have to do. You're going to go up there and encourage their hearts. And that's what he does, which we'll talk about next week. But check it out. What an encouragement. Oh, I'm in the wrong place. I'll just quote it. He goes up there and he says, it says that he observed the grace of God among them. He observed, what's grace? Charis, kindness, favor. It takes effort to observe grace amongst God's people, doesn't it? It's a mindset. Because it's so much easier to take in behavior and words said and attitudes it's so much easier to, to look at the outside and go, you guys are done. This is ridiculous. I'm going back to Jerusalem where folks know what worship should be like. But he shows up and he sees the grace among them. And he looks at every person. He's like, God's grace is in your life. I see his kindness in your life. I see his kindness in this group of unruly believers that just got saved. They have no Bible to reference. They have no, not very many writings anyway and copies it's not like there's no Gutenberg press yet. Everything's handwritten. Everything's oral tradition to some extent still. And to go up there and just to observe God's grace. And then to his, his message was this. Stick to Christ. That's what his message was. Make sure you stick to Jesus. And they said, we, we're going to send Barnabas because we know when he goes up there, he's just going to encourage these people. And that's what he does. And Paul, you know, years later, 35, 45 years later, writing Philippians, gives this encouragement. He says, look, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if Christ has encouraged you at all, if he's ministered to you in your life at all, if you've received any comfort from his love, he says, if, you're, if there's any participation in the Spirit, in other words, if the Spirit has worked in your life, if there's any affection and sympathy from Christ in you, he says then, complete my joy and be of the same mind. Walk in that. As a church, as believers, walk in that. He's going to go on, he says, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. Our motivation is not for ourselves in serving each other. And we don't want to operate out of that. We don't want to ever operate out of being seen or being appreciated or being thanked. The ministry is not getting thanks. It's obeying Jesus. And he says, but instead in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not, at only, excuse me, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. These are very practical things. He doesn't say, don't look at your interests. He says, just make sure you're looking at other people's interests also. Be considering of other people. And he's gonna, he goes on in the end, because we're out of time here. He says this, verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Again, where do we get that mindset? Where do we get that understanding? From Christ. It's not our mindset. It's not us changing ourselves. It's not us trying harder. It's us inviting Christ into our lives through the Holy Spirit, inviting Christ into our thought lives, inviting Christ into our opinions, inviting Christ into our attitudes, being literally open for anything that the Holy Spirit is trying to minister to me. And when the Holy Spirit speaks to me, I deal with it on the spot. I don't wait to get zapped. I don't wait to just become Barnabas one day. I don't wait to... No, I deal with it. I deal with it on the spot. When I'm walking in sin, I'm honest about it between me and the Lord and with others around me if need be. He says, you have this, this mind because this mind was in Christ. Let Christ permeate your mind. Now, having said that, just in light of um, application, so how do, you, how do we deal with this? Does that mean that we never watch television? Does that mean that we never go on vacations? Does that mean that we never listen to the radio? Does that mean, you know, what does this mean for my life? How do I practically work through this? And some of that's going to be between you and the Holy Spirit, 100%. And, and, and nobody else has to do with that except you and the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, how's the, how the, make sure it's by the word. It's always a little bit humorous when, when you're like, hey, you should 
maybe consider being nicer. And somebody's like, I'll pray about that. Like, I don't, how you, what answer do you think you're going to get? I don't understand. Like, thou shalt not be nice. Come on. Um, But we, you know, we work through these things, you know, through the eye and the lens of scripture. But how do I, how do I super, how do I invite this and allow it into my life? How do I, how do I know what I should and shouldn't do? Here's the thing. We don't want to adopt anything that this world has, right? So are we saying never watch TV? No, we're not saying never watch TV. But we don't adopt, we don't adopt the attitudes of TV. Does that make sense? You know, you want to watch Tucker Carlson? God bless you. But you have nothing to fear that Tucker Carlson could ever say. You want to watch Bill Mayer? God bless you but you have nothing to fear out of what Bill Mayer could ever say. You don't have to adopt the spirit behind it. You know, you want to listen to the radio and, and, and secular music? Hey, God bless you in that. But don't adopt the spirit behind it. Be careful to what you're listening to, why you listen to it. Does it affect you? It affects me. I, I'm, I'm not making any answers for you. I know that for me personally, there were times in my life where I had to get rid of music because it created rage or loneliness or different things in me. And for a long time, I'd wonder, like, why do I have that? And I realized, like, oh, because all day long, you know, I, when I worked at the Honda store, regardless how you feel about country music, that was what, we had one radio, and I was the low man on totem pole for a long time, and so we listened to country music. And um, it was interesting, because I thought to myself, country music, for the most part, in the 90s, was essentially, this, the, the idea was, if you have, like, a nice house and a good lady or a good husband, and a farm, then you're content. That's like the message of country music. And a dog, typically, but, you know, or maybe a truck in there, too. But the, you know, it always revolved around these thing, the things of this world. The, this, a, a relationship. And I, I have nothing against country music at all. I really don't. I grew to have an appreciation for it. But it grew something in me, too. And that was loneliness and desire. I thought, well, where's my wife? Where's my, where's my, I, I got to get my house. I got to get my comfort. I got to do that for myself. I used to listen to a ton of like Nine Inch Nails and, and uh, you know, Rage Against the Machine, these different bands like that. And then I would kind of wonder to myself, why am I so angry? Why am I so upset at society? Why do I have hatred in my heart? Well, maybe it's because the music I listen to revolves around despising, hating, and condemning. So again, there's, there's actually no, no New Testament clause that says, thou shalt not go to the movies. But there is the clause that says, be holy as I am holy. Be set apart. Be considerate. Be thinking as he's thinking. So if you can enjoy you know, some Steve Miller band or whatever and not adopt Steve Miller band ideals, the Lord leads you in that. But if, you're, if you can't listen to it without adopting it, if you can't watch it without believing it, you probably shouldn't. But that's between you and the Lord. So how do I deal with this? I listen to the Holy Spirit. That's what we do. We listen to the Holy Spirit. We yield to the Holy Spirit in honesty, and we make effort. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's the free gift of God. Your inheritance in heaven is a free gift. But what we do with our souls, what we allow in our souls, if we take on those attitudes, if we take on the, the world's um, values, they will get purged. The, the question is, will you purge them now voluntarily or will Jesus purge them at the judgment seat of Christ? Because this world's, this world's values, it can, they cannot enter heaven. And so if our souls our hearts, if our minds are full of this world's values, as a saved person, when we stand before Christ, he will lovingly, willingly, carefully burn them from us. And then we'll get to pass into heaven. But if we are those that are willing to lay down our lives, receive what he has for us, listen to the Holy Spirit, he says there is reward. I don't even know what that is, but there is reward. And there is going to be a type of fellowship that comes along with that in this life. So I encourage you, just like me, let's repent. Let's repent. Turn and go the other way. 
from the things that we love from this earth, and let's invite Christ in. And, and you know what? We'll be Barnabases. That's who we'll be. Sons of encouragement. People with the fruit of the Spirit. People that other people love to be around because we're not giving them us, we're giving them Jesus. And the, the hand of the Lord will be with us and we'll see great things in this rotting world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great kindness and your great mercy. Lord, thank you for the encouragement of people like Samson and Abraham and David, people with massive failures, but people that were after your own heart. Lord, we want to leave our failures behind. We want to confess our sins to you. We want to have restored fellowship with you. We want to ask for the filling of your Holy Spirit, even right now, in our own hearts. Lord, would you please fill this place with your Spirit? Would you please lead us, guide us, and may your goodness lead us again and again to repentance that we might seek after you. Thanks for being so kind to us and gracious, and we just leave our hearts in your hand and ask you to do great things with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.